I was maybe not going to bring that particular part of the book up, but I'm glad that you did. I think in many ways it's so revealing. It's an example that, okay, maybe repulses a lot of people, but at the same time, we would see this as a psychological problem of a teenage boy. They see it as a crime in the eyes of God that should be punished as they understood it through the Old Testament dictated. It's the Book Society podcast, and my guest today is Dr. Peter Mancall. He is a PhD from Harvard. He helped create the USC Huntington Early Modern Studies Institute, which I have no idea what that is, but it sounds really impressive. This is a Book Society first that Peter and Lisa, who we had talking about the toy, are a husband and wife. And so you're the first husband and wife academic team that we've had on the podcast. He was the Harmsworth Professor of American History at Oxford from 2019 to 2020. He's the author of six books and the editor of many more and contributed to anthologies and probably written some papers. As a member of the American Antiquarian Society and a fellow of the Los Angeles Institute for the Humanities, which I'm still waiting for them to host a dinner in my honor. I'll do what I can. <laughs> Thank you. A member of the Royal Historical Society. His most recent book is The Trials of Thomas Morton, which we're going to talk about a little bit. Forthcoming is American Origins, Volume 1, which is the Oxford History of the United States, which is going to be pretty cool. It'll be pretty long, and I hope it'll be pretty cool. We'll see. <laughs> so you're the perfect person to talk to about this book. The first question I always ask is, why did you pick this book? But it's pretty clear. We're talking about Of Plymouth Plantation by William Bradford. I'm just going to let you talk about it. So Of Plymouth Plantation. Why did you choose this book, Professor? Okay, well, Lucas, thank you for inviting me onto the show. I'm delighted to be here at Book Society, and I'm happy to talk about Bradford's Up Plymouth Plantation. So I'm a historian of early America, and even among early American historians, I'm on the early side of them. So I spend most of my time talking about the 16th and 17th centuries. So this is the time when the English established colonies in Eastern North America, which eventually became the United States. So some of what I do, a lot of what I do is about the origins of how the country evolved based on what happened hundreds of years ago. I chose this book because Bradford had a really important perch. He was the governor of Plymouth and he was its primary historian. And he produced this book. He started writing it about 10 years after the pilgrims arrived in 1620. And he wrote for about 20 years and he wrote this sort of thing, basically covering the period of Plymouth until his death. Even though Plymouth was a relatively small colony, there were maybe 100 pilgrims who got there in 1620, maybe 10 years later. There are about 300 people there, maybe at the peak of its population, there were 1,000 colonists there. It was very small, even by standards of English colonies, and much smaller than the native communities nearby. Nonetheless, Plymouth has had a really powerful hold on the American imagination, in part because it's linked to the holiday that we call Thanksgiving or that most people call Thanksgiving, which is now known among many indigenous peoples as the National Day of Mourning, which gives you a sense of the contested origins of early New England. Bradford is a very revealing way to get into this whole period, which helps us understand where sort of what we think of as America, where it came from. So that's why I suggested that we talk about the book. This most recent Thanksgiving, I'm sort of torn on the holiday because I'm an American and it's something I grew up with, but I also have a lot of Native friends. And so I spent the day just thinking of people who I love. And I contacted previous podcast guest, Teokas and Ghost Horse, who is a Native person, as you can probably tell by his name. And I texted him and said, happy Thursday. Just thinking about you. It's a very complicated day. So during Thanksgiving week, I did an interview with the Washington Post. I did an interview with a British magazine. I wrote two pieces and some of this was picked up. And I did a public lecture online, something called One Day University, 
which happened to come to the notice of Fox News. And then I got these other sort of inquiries. And what came to me is that how intensely people sort of think about Thanksgiving. Many Americans who want to have the big football games, parades, turkey meals, just want to have a good time on Thanksgiving, don't want to think about what I spend most of my time as a historian doing, which is try to understand what actually happened at the time, because what happened at the time is far more complicated, and the larger context of that moment is far more violent than the sort of sanitized version we have about Thanksgiving. Bradford actually had a plantation. You could tell how insignificant the first Thanksgiving was because he barely mentions it when he's talking about 1621. But I think it's very important because it's one of these moments that allows us to sort of think about what does it mean to celebrate this moment? Why do we celebrate these people, the pilgrims? In recent years, we say, oh, wait, it was pilgrims and Wampanoags. They met peacefully together. And that tells us something about, but why is it that certain people in my rather innocuous writings of last week thought that somehow I posed a threat to Thanksgiving when all I was doing is saying, let's put Thanksgiving in the context of the 17th century. What I did was contrast basically Thanksgiving with what happened six months later in Virginia, where there was a huge native uprising, which led to 10 years of war. And then I talked about other really violent encounters between native peoples and Europeans over the course of the 17th century. So whenever we think about Thanksgiving, we are sort of reflexively thinking about the 17th century, and it's worth thinking about the larger context, not just about that one meal. Yeah, reading this book, I was extremely surprised by the fact that everyone seems to have slept on the fact that this was the 400th anniversary of Thanksgiving this year. The people in Plymouth did not sleep on that fact. They were all over the anniversary. But I would say it mostly did not get a lot of attention. Last year, the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrims arriving got more attention. I don't know if I read this right, but did they have a day of humiliation? Days of Thanksgiving and days of humiliation were sort of the same thing. Bradford uses these various phrases, but basically a day of Thanksgiving for these people, these pilgrims, who are a subset of the larger group of Puritans, as we call them. As you saw Lucas Newman read the book, he's often saying it was the will of God to do things, right? That's one of his favorite literary constructions. Everything is the unfolding of a plan because in their mind, everything was the unfolding of a plan because they believed in predestination. They believed that everything that happened was God's plan. But even though it was all predestined to happen that way, part of their desire to show that they are worthy of salvation was to show that they respect God. And so to do that, they are constantly not only going to church. I mean, that's the stereotype of the Puritans and the pilgrims. They're always going to church. It's always winter. It's always snowy. They're always wearing heavy clothes. They never have any fun. That's them. And they're praying, praying, praying. Well, they weren't always praying, praying, praying. But the texts like Bradford do suggest that religion was important to them. And part of it was they thought they were always being looked at in some sense by the divine. And so therefore they wanted to behave appropriately. And in their mind, that meant when something happened, we give thanks. We show that we are humble in the eyes of God, that we set aside time. We stop working. We set aside time to reflect on God's greatness for us. Now, the trick for modern readers it's very easy to take Bradford out of context. So, for example, when Bradford talks about a really terrible smallpox epidemic that raped among Native peoples, he says near the end something like, oh, and it was the good grace of God that none of the pilgrims were taken by this. You can take that out of context and think, oh, Bradford thinks that God wanted to get rid of the Native peoples. 
But in fact, you could turn to the next page or the next page, and everything is the same thing. Oh, it was the good grace of God that this happened. And so reading the book, you get a sense that they are looking at the real world. He's a historian and a politician. He's looking at the world and describing it. But we might think, I live in a fairly secular world, so I might think, oh, I'm looking and I'm talking to you today, and I would just describe this. He is thinking, how is this part of this sort of divine plan? What responses am I supposed to give to God? And how are we supposed to collectively recognize God's authority? That sort of comes through as one of the powerful themes in the book. Yeah, it reminds me of early Mormon stuff. They think they're writing the third book of the Bible, and that everything they do has this historical significance. And I do get that impression from Bradford. And I have a question for you in that vein. But just to set it up, because people maybe haven't read this book, let's just talk a little bit about who these people were. I just thought of the pilgrims as the guys with the funny hats who came to America. And I never thought of what they might have been doing before that. They arrive at Plymouth in 1620, but this book begins in 1608, where they're religious separatists who have to flee England for a reason that is not clear to me that I'm going to ask you to explain. They go from England to the Netherlands, from the Netherlands back to England, basically just to disembark on this journey. But can you talk to us a little bit about who they were, why they were, to quote Robin Williams, so uptight that the English kicked them out? And what was the religious climate in the UK at that time? It wasn't the UK, but yeah. So basically, for a long time, there was a unified church. And then that fractured in the 16th century when Luther and others led this thing that we call the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation spreads to England in the 1530s, but Henry VIII basically wants to get divorced. I mean, that's the popular story. And so they create a separate church, the Church of England, which in many ways is similar to the operations of the Catholic Church, but it is separate from Rome. And the monarch is the head of the church as well as the head of the state. So England then goes on a separate religious trajectory from other parts of Europe. Other peoples adopted the Reformation, but most of Europe remains what we would refer to as Catholic or Roman Catholic. During the course of the 16th century, there are these intense debates within England, as in with other countries, and which you can see in any society. I'm speaking to you two days after the Supreme Court had epic oral arguments about Roe v. Wade, which on some level is a debate about religion and about what we think. So lots of societies have intense debates about religious ideas. So in England, the Protestant Reformation, some elements of it were based on a belief that people should be literate and they should read the Bible for themselves and they should work with their local minister to understand things. After Luther came a theologian named John Calvin, and Calvin believed in this idea of predestination, that is that everything happened was the unfolding of a divine plan. These ideas spread to England and become rooted among certain groups of Protestants. So the society at large is Protestant under the Church of England. And then there are these groups that dissent from the Church of England, also Protestant, but very much opposed to some of the things that the Church of England believed in. For our purposes for American history, the most important of those groups are the people we call Puritans. And then a subset of the Puritans are people we call pilgrims. So pilgrims are Puritans, but not all Puritans are pilgrims, if that makes sense. It's confusing. I teach this all the time. It can still be somewhat confusing. So towards the latter decades of the 16th century, a lot of these Puritans criticized the Church of England. They didn't like certain things about it. And one of the things that they really didn't like about it was the Church of England, by law, everybody was a member. I mean, unless you were of an identified other religious group, of which there weren't that many. So Jews would be separate, 
and there were people who were Catholics who were separate. But basically, the presumption was everyone was a member of the Church of England. These English Puritans believed that a church wasn't just a physical building. A church was, as they thought of it, a gathering together of the elect, a gathering together of those God had chosen for salvation. And so they thought that the worldly version of that, the church that you go to, should as much as possible approximate those people who are the elect. Because obviously, as they would have put it, God did not intend those who weren't saved to be members of the church. So these debates are going on in the 16th century in England and into the beginning of the 17th century. And the authorities who run the Church of England are very upset about this, and they try to quash this. So some of these Puritans, the people we call pilgrims, decide to become separatists. That is, they're going to leave the Church of England, and they go across the water, and they go to Leiden, where they set up their own church on their own principles, and they decide who is going to be a member. So they basically chose. You would have to sort of go through a ritual why do you think you're among the elect? And there's all sorts of hidden traps that people fell into all the time. A famous American example is someone named Anne Hutchinson. So Anne Hutchinson is living in Boston, and Anne Hutchinson is essentially preaching to local people. And the Puritan authorities don't like that, A, because she's a woman, and they don't like what she's saying. So they bring her in, and they're trying to figure out how to get rid of her. And she's very clever. She is smarter than them in many respects. But at one point, when they ask her a piece of doctrine, it's like, how do you know this? She essentially says, because I learned it from God. And that to the Puritans was a heretical statement because that was something that was known as antinomianism or the belief in direct revelation. Well, if you believed in direct revelation, then you couldn't be among the Puritans. So that was a justification for getting rid of her. This is one of the reasons they also didn't like Quakers later in the 17th century. In fact, Puritans extra Quakers on Boston Common for different religious views. 17th century was an intense time for these religious debates. They would not have liked contemporary American evangelicals. Oh, no, no, they would not have liked all this. is one of the ironies of some people loving Thanksgiving and the pilgrims. It's like the pilgrims would not have liked most of us. We romanticize this idea of them. They're really severe, these people. There was some parts of this book that I wish I was reading it in a class because there are some things that I wanted to just pull out and say like, okay, what the hell is this? This is kind of a paragraph of insanity. And then we return to normalness. I was very conscious as we were reading this that William Bradford was writing a historical document and portraying his people in a certain light and portraying them the way, let's assume the way that they thought of themselves, but certainly the way that they wanted history to think of them. And you mentioned they went to Leiden, which is north of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. They described themselves as a model immigrant population where everybody wanted to trade with them. They were always upright and forthright. And every deal they have in this book, and there are many, many business deals in this book, they are always forthright and upright, and they always get screwed. It's always their treacherous partner is the reason that the deal doesn't work out. And, you know, I'm very conscious that that's propaganda. I'm delighted that you saw all those transactions. That is one of the major themes in the book is you're surprised, wait a minute, how many deals are they making all the time? There's a reason for a lot of it. But I mean, some of what we forget, you know, they have this high notion that they're going to come over and they're going to convert native peoples. They talked about that with some regularity. But they're also concerned with the fur trade because they need to get these beaver pelts to pay off their debts. And a lot of the dealings you see in a plantation is sort of like, wait, how do we pay off our debt? There's a lot of transactions going on, a lot of worldly stuff for a book that you think is going to be fairly about religion. 
Can you talk to us a little bit about the economics of that time? I mean, this book is, I would say it's like 50% business. Part of it reads like a fantastical voyage narrative, and part of it reads as minutes of a town meeting. I didn't quite understand exactly the deal that they made to get to the United States because they had to partner with some people and then they made some deal where they were going to go to the new world and farm in this collective way and send proceeds back. But it was unclear to me what they were expecting to find to sell. But I guess beaver pelts was one of the things. What were the economics of this? So if you and I were trying to organize this together, we're British people living in Leyden, believing in predestination. We go to Plymouth and find some rich people and try to put together a company and buy a ship. How does this all work? Free people across the Atlantic Ocean had to find a way to pay their way. So either they had money, which a number of the Puritans did have. A lot of them were free in the sense that they paid their way. And so when they landed in New England, they could then go about and start a new life. In other parts, at this exact same time period, there are a lot of poorer English men and women who were going to Virginia who were selling their labor as indentured servants because they couldn't afford their passage. So everyone had to figure out a way over. So basically... This is what we would call sort of, you know, a capitalist system. There are people who own boats. The boats have to be staffed with enough crew to go back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean. The captains of the crew and the people who have financed the crew are usually living in places like Amsterdam or London or Bristol or Plymouth. They are concerned with making money on these things to keep going and to make a profit. So what we forget, because we always talk about the pilgrims as being the beginning of a story, they're the midpoint of a story. They're not the beginning of a story at all. A lot of Europeans, even a lot of English, had been to the Atlantic Coast of North America before 1620. They had an understanding of some of the resources that were there. So basically, when the pilgrims are organizing their trip across the Atlantic Ocean, there's a lot of literature on what exists in North America and how to extract things. The most important resource up until this point from New England, what we think of as New England, was cod, you know, Cape Cod. There have been Europeans trawling the coast of the shelf for decades at that point. So there's a big trade in cod. But they also knew that in New England, there were beaver and other fur-bearing animals. And that was the likely best way to make money because as it turned out in one of these weird historical coincidences, Western Europeans, they loved making things out of beaver. There was an old world population of beaver, which basically came from Russia. But beaver are an animal that's very easy to overhunt. And so the old world stock of beaver had really diminished by this point. And so one of the things that Europeans, including the English, liked about places like New England was, wait a minute, there are a lot of beaver here. So they knew going in that this would be a trade. Now, the beaver trade hinges on either going out and finding the beaver themselves, which is inefficient if you don't know what you're doing, or forming a partnership with native hunters who do know what they're doing. And that means providing native hunters with incentive to do this. So they, what goods do they have to take over? Well, what indigenous peoples in this part of North America wanted in the 17th century were manufactured goods. So they might've wanted a copper kettle, for example, because a copper kettle was lighter than a ceramic kettle and more important, a copper kettle could be chopped up, people could make arrowheads out of it and it's more efficient. So. There's a lot of underlying economic logic of the pilgrims and other English trying to figure out what are the commodities that would get native peoples to want to partner with us, and then we communicate to the natives what we want are beaver pelts and other furs. So it was probably the fur trade was the most important economic opportunity that the pilgrims thought they had. 
Now, they did think that once they got there and paid off their debts, they would create these self-sustaining communities, which is more or less what they did. I mean, they're not entirely self-sustaining, but they're farming communities in the 17th century. If you could have access to land and you could produce the food that you need, you could basically develop a local economy. And then you participate in these larger economies, either with indigenous trading partners, with European trading partners, for things that you can't produce yourself. Now, that's predicated in the Pilgrim's case and the Puritan's case on a very important development, which they didn't at first control, and that is from 1617 to 1619, there was a terrible epidemic that raged in this part of North America, and it really diminished the number of indigenous peoples. So the Pilgrims were really beneficiaries of this catastrophe, as another historian pointed out, this catastrophe which befell native peoples was to the benefit of the pilgrims because then they had less competition for land. It wasn't smallpox. Smallpox in other places, there's a debate about what this disease was. There's been some new medical work on this. I think it's probably a disease called leptospirosis. Leptospirosis is a disease transported by rats, by old world rats, like plague was transported by old world rats. As far as we can tell, it was probably that as opposed to smallpox, but in some sense it doesn't matter because we're never going to know for sure. But we know that the death rate was possibly up to 90% in some of these communities. There's a section when they go meet their first native chief that they're getting there just as the plague has ended. And there are too many dead for the living to bury. So there are bodies everywhere. One of the things that pilgrims claim is that there aren't even enough survivors to bury the dead. We don't know if that's true, but that is one of the claims that Bradford and others make. Yeah, and this is another interesting thing is that when they got to Plymouth, there was stuff there already. Yes, and that's a really important thing to remember. When I talk about early Plymouth, it's so important. Not only was it already cleared, it's not some primeval forest. It's a farming community on the shores of a very rich marine ecosystem. It's not only that this was true, Europeans knew it was true because Champlain had been to the area, had done a drawing of the area, you can see houses and fields next to them. So they're well aware this is not woods, forest. This is a farming community, which happened to be, because of this terrible epidemic, severely depopulated, which provided an opening for the pilgrims. Yeah, that's definitely one that they skipped over in my pilgrim nativity play in Hingham Middle School. <laughs> So if I can just stay on this, I want to talk about Bradford's arrival. So when we read Plymouth Plantation, there's sort of a temptation to think, as you said a few minutes ago, there's all this business stuff going on. It just reads like it's a day-to-day -day thing. So we have to remember that Bradford starts writing it 10 years after the pilgrims get there. And so he's reconstructing the origins of things. And one thing he reconstructs in this very memorable phrasing is the actual arrival of the pilgrims. So he knows he's writing for posterity. He knows he's writing for people who are his contemporaries. Book isn't published during his lifetime. It circulates in manuscript, but he knows people are going to read it. He's a prominent guy. He's involved in the politics. He's the governor, and he is a very talented writer. You can read this now, and this is much easier to read for a 21st century audience than most 17th century texts, which are really difficult, even when they have ideas we like. This is a very straightforward thing. In his construction, they arrive, and it's winter, and they go into this place that he constructs as a dense forest. And in one of his 
famous or notorious lines, depending on how you want to see it. And he talks about them being surrounded by wild beasts and wild men. And he doesn't know how many of them there are. And he, in this context, puts himself in the framework of the ancient Israelites, the ancient Hebrews, because they think they are another version of this. So a lot of this, when they make biblical references, a lot of them are to the Old Testament, because that's how he sort of sees himself and sees us working up. So he says, we got there, there were no taverns to take care of us, like we read in scripture. We're in this forest, there are these people, and he says of these native peoples, readier to fill their sides with arrows. They're just ready to attack us. This is how he writes about it. And then he says, you know, what could we do? And he says, we couldn't go up Mount Pisgah. And he makes this reference in the text, which his readers would have gotten. Now, a lot of people scratch their heads. Out of Exodus, that is where Moses went when he went to look down on the promised land. So he said, we don't have anything like that. So what do we do? Bradford says, we look up to God. That's where we found salvation. And so he weaves this religious idea about God into the reconstruction of the arrival of the pilgrims in real life. And it's a literary technique that he does time and again throughout a Plymouth Plantation. I thought that that was just a convention of these incredibly religious people, but it's an effective literary device. I felt like I kind of saw through it. It just really read like propaganda to me more than something that was genuinely felt. I mean, in the introduction, it says that he was reconstructing some of these events posthumously. I guess was some of it primary? The arrival was posthumous, right? But he's writing some of it sort of more or less as it's happening, right? He is presumably writing much of it while it's taking place. He starts writing in 1630. He writes for 20 years. He is recording events. I mean, the difficult thing about the text is we look at it, we sort of think, oh, it almost seems like a diary, but it's not a diary. We have other people's diaries. And diaries are filled with things which are like partial thoughts and interrupted narratives. This is obviously based on his notes, contemporaneous notes, perhaps after 1630, but it's a polished text, which he weaves in. He writes in certain letters that arrive to him as if these are seamless whole. But no, there is absolutely, once you move into a lot of it, it does feel like it's of the moment, like he is writing about what he is seeing. And that sense of immediacy is part of his literary gift. I mean, imagine writing something now. I imagine this. Am I writing something now that someone's going to read in 400 years? I mean, that's kind of an amazing achievement. We read very few things from the 17th century. And we tend to forget, you know, wait, what does that mean? 400 years ago? I write a book. I hope someone's reading it next year. <laughs> this is kind of amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about the provenance of this book and how it has come down to us over 400 years? So basically, Bradford starts to write the book, he tells us, in 1630. It is a manuscript. That means it's not printed at the time. He shares the manuscript with other people, and it gets passed around after he's dead, before it's printed, because we know that people are reading it because they're referring to it. And some other authors, including his nephew, have taken some of the text and woven it into their own books as if it's their work. I mean, it's almost like plagiarism. But his book remains unpublished until the 19th century. And then it's eventually published, and it circulates, and then it really comes to be known in the 20th century. While it's known in the 19th century, and so people are aware of it, I think its biggest fame probably started to come 
if I had to guess, starting around the 300th anniversary of the Pilgrim's arrival around 1920, I think is probably where we think about it. And then the sort of classic edition that most of us use was by this guy named Samuel L. Morrison, who does it in the mid-20th century. There's a new edition. There's a 400th anniversary edition. There are a lot of editions of the plantation out there. It's a good reminder to us that ideas circulate even before books are printed, even long ideas. So you can imagine in the age of the revolution, because we know that people are reading it, right? In fact, they're reading it in Boston, basically at the time of the revolution, that people are literally carrying this big manuscript. People are copying up parts. And that was fairly common. You would borrow a book if it wasn't printed or had been printed a long time ago, and you would sit and copy it up. And there's a book printed while Bradford is writing. There's a book written by a guy named Thomas Morton, the one I wrote a book about, who I think is an amazing character in himself. His book is published in 1637. It's not published again for another couple hundred years, but it's published in 1637. That also makes the rounds. There aren't that many copies of that original printing. And sometimes people sat and they copied it out. I also just want to point out that they arrived in Cape Cod in November, which is crazy. Their story starts with them getting to Cape Cod, basically with the clothes in their backs in the middle of winter. That in and of itself, the fact that any of them survived that winter is a miracle to me. Well, only half of them do survive that winter. And the strange thing about that as a historian who reads these texts all the time is people knew when it was better to arrive, and yet they were very late in the year. The standard sailing season is you leave in late March or early April. Henry Hudson, the explorer, was a little before the pilgrims. He would always leave at the beginning of April for his expeditions, which would mean he would get to North America in late May, early June, and then explore and then go back. The pilgrims, they would say, this was God's plan that half of them would survive. It taught them about suffering and endurance and how to survive in this place. And one of the lessons was pay attention to God. Yeah, I mean, only religious zealots would choose to settle in Massachusetts in November. (laughs) If you needed any more evidence that they were insane, that's pretty much it. But so the next year, or maybe it's two years after, some other people arrive. They arrived with nothing. They didn't have any provisions, and a ship dropped them off, and the pilgrims had to take care of them. And then they ended up forming their own separate group. Who were these people? Well, this happens a number of times. So the pilgrims basically land in 1620. And in 1622, 1623, 1624, other people start showing up. There aren't that many pilgrims. And these others show up. Among them are people who don't share their religious view. There are people on the Mayflower who don't share their religious view. The Mayflower Compact is only signed by people of this one religious community. It's not even everyone on the ship. And when they get there, the original idea is they're going to share everything in what we would think of as sort of a primitive communist economy, which they quickly reject. They realize it doesn't work, so they move off it. But other people show up and they have different motivations. They're not there seeking religious freedom because they're not being persecuted by the Church of England. They're there basically to make money or to find a better life. And so these various people start to create other communities. For me, the most important of those nearby communities is this place that comes known as Merrimount, which is where Thomas Morton goes. And when he comes back, he actually makes a brief trip in 22 when he comes back. And then he takes over a little clearing and starts dealing with local native peoples and trading with them. And then he, because he's in the fur trade too, he then is a rival to the pilgrims because the pilgrims want to make sure they have enough of the fur trade. And so there are these others. So there's these people who are living near the pilgrims that the pilgrims don't like, don't think like them, and then they're competitors with them. And this is even putting aside the fact that the pilgrims in their mind are surrounded 
by Native peoples who they're very scared of. When Bradford does that reconstruction, they could shoot our sides full of arrows. We don't know how many. He's doing that 10 years after they've been there. He's still getting at that sort of elemental sense, wait, there are people there. And then those tensions culminate in the narrative in 1637 in this event called the Pequot War, one of these horrific incidents, which at its heart is based on the Puritans have come to Boston at this point. So there's Puritan Massachusetts and Pilgrim Plymouth, if you want. They need the fur trade. They're convinced that the Pequots and the Narragansett, the two largest of these native groups in the area at the time, are going to gang up against them, cut off the fur trade, and basically ruin their colonies. So they decide they have to take a preemptive measure, as they think. There's a lot of tension. They make an alliance with the Narragansetts. And in the moment that Bradford describes, probably the most infamous moment in El Plymouth Plantation, sort of the dramatic centerpiece of the book, is they surround this village on the Mystic River, and they set it on fire. And as people are literally burning to death and running out, the pilgrims and Puritans are shooting them and killing them. And then the survivors, they capture survivors and enslave them and sell them as slaves to the West Indies. So even Bradford tells us, right? So this is not some like, oh, what do I as a 21st century historian think? Even Bradford tells us that they killed 400 people. This is a genocidal act. John Winthrop, the governor of Massachusetts, later estimated that between the number killed and enslaved, it was at least 700. I mean, this is an amazing sort of thing. And so part of my tension with Bradford is that, you know, people just turn to this and they say, oh, you know, Thanksgiving, everyone got along. And my point is, read farther into the book. Because when you read farther into the book, you can see the origins or one other sign of the absolutely toxic relations between Native peoples and European colonists. And it's his words. I often read to my students, here's his description of it, not mine, his description of it. And it's shocking. And then he gets to the end of it. So this is part of a paragraph of Bradford. Those that first entered found sharp resistance from the enemy who both shot at and grappled with them. Others ran into their houses and brought out fire and set them on fire, which soon took in their mat and standing close together with the wind always quick on a flame and thereby more were burnt to death than otherwise slain. It burnt their bowstrings and made them unserviceable. Those that escaped the fire were slain with the sword, some hewed to pieces, others run through with their rapiers. So as they were very quickly dispatched and very few escaped, it was conceived that it thus destroyed about 400 at this time. This is like a cold clinical operation, right? Then he goes on. It was a fearful sight to see them thus frying in the fire and the streams of blood quenching the same, and horrible was the stink and scent thereof. But the victory seemed a sweet sacrifice. That's a line from Leviticus. And they gave the praise thereof to God, who had wrought so wonderfully for them, thus to enclose their enemies in their hands and give them so speedy a victory over so proud and insulting an enemy. Right? It is a shocking moment in which he describes what humans do, but the subtext is, this is all the unfolding of this plan, and when it was done, we thank God for helping us destroy these people. It's an amazing moment. It is not unique in 17th century literature, but it is crystal clear what it's telling us. I don't know of many other primary sources of descriptions of battles like this that are that, how do I put it? Again, the word zealotry. I mean, what they're doing is clearly completely messed up, but they believe it's the right thing because it's ordained by God. And in a way, they're right. Of Plymouth Plantation reads like the narrative of any time two opposing civilizations clash. 
And this story happens over and over again. You know, you can see it in roommates. You know, <laughs> it starts out cool and then it gets real weird. And if you were forced to live together forever, you'd eventually kill each other. It's interesting to read. They don't arrive with the intention of murdering Indians. No, not at all. Or at least that's what they tell us they don't. And I believe them. I don't think that's their goal at first. And in fact, as Bradford himself tells us, when some of the colonists murder one of the natives, the colonists execute other colonists because there's a way of preserving peace. So it's not like they arrive and they paint all native peoples as their enemy and all English as their friends. Thomas Morton, they kick out three times. They exile Anne Hutchinson. They exile Roger Williams, who's known as the founder of Rhode Island and a father of religious freedom in America. They had particular things in mind about how to create their communities. There's one more slight passage I want to read for you, which I think at this idea. It's a curious thing. It's deep in the book. And most people, I think, probably don't get far enough. I mean, this is really far into the book. And this is a story that he tells about a teenager who's 16 or 17 years old. And this is 1642. Uh, at the time where these things befell a very sad accident of the like foul nature of this government this very year, which I now relate. So he's acting like this just happened. And he's writing about it. And he's putting this in his history. There was a youth whose name was Thomas Granger. He was a servant to an honest man of Duxbury being 16 or 17 years of age. He was this year detected of buggery and indicted for the same with a mare, a cow, two goats, five sheep, two cows, and a turkey. Now let that sink in. They've accused a teenage boy of having sex with a range of barnyard animals. Bradford then writes, horrible it is to mention, but the truth of this history requires it. He was first discovered by one that actually saw his loose practices towards the mare. Then Bradford, in one of his classic moments, in a parenthetical phrase, I forbear the particulars. Like, I'm not going to tell you any more about what was seen. Then, it's an amazing scene, then he goes on. When they're talking to the kid, being upon it, examined and committed, in the end, he not only confessed the fact with that beast, that is the mayor at that time, but sundry times before, and, and it several times as well, with all of the four named in this night, that he admits having out sex with these animals that they mentioned. And this free confession was not only private to the magistrates, that we said he would first deny it, but to others, both ministers and others, and afterwards, upon his indictment to the whole court and jury, and confirmed it at his execution. And whereas, this is amazing to me, some of the sheep could not be well be known by his description of them. Others with them were brought before him, and he declared which they were and which were not. He's in court. They're parading sheep through for him to identify those that he had sex with. And then he tells them this. And then accordingly, he was cast by the jury and condemned and after executed. A very sad spectacle it was. And then he describes the spectacle. For first the mare and then the cow, then the rest of the lesser cattle were killed before his face, according to the law in Leviticus 2015. And then he himself was executed. The cattle were all cast into a great and large pit that was digged the purpose of them and no use made any part of them. And some people think history is boring. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing boring here. So why tell us these details? Because he's not only telling us what happened, He's then telling his readers, we dealt with it the way scripture taught us to deal with it. We went through a process of trying to figure out which were the animals he had sex with. He identifies them. And then Leviticus says, those are polluted animals. So they have to be killed. They can't be eaten. And that's when he says that last line. And we threw them all into a great pit because no use can be made. And they execute him. So basically, they've taken a teenage boy who engages in behavior, which would be out of the realm of normality. I'm not defending bestiality here, but we wouldn't execute someone for that. 
nor would we then execute all the animals. This is really a reflection of their mentality, and Bradford brings us right into it with the, frankly, vivid nature of his prose. I was maybe not going to bring that particular part of the book up, but I'm glad that you did. I think in many ways it's so revealing. It's an example that, okay, maybe repulses a lot of people, but at the same time, we would see this as a psychological problem of a teenage boy. They see it as a crime in the eyes of God that should be punished as they understood it through the Old Testament dictated. One of the things I wanted to just go back to, you touched on it briefly, but this book and Bradford in particular has a pretty cogent excoriation of communism from 200 years before Marx. It was supposed to kind of be a communist endeavor for a certain number of years, and they tried to make it that way. And when the plantation, from his description, when it really started to flourish was when they decided to institute private property. Was this debate going on at that time? And were Puritans habitually on that side of it? It's not a similar debate that we're having now. That word communism, which used in the text, was added by Morrison when he did his edition of it in the 20th century. The word communism doesn't exist, and he wouldn't have done. It goes to a pilgrim and a Puritan idea that each individual should be working for the common good. In retrospect, we sort of say, oh, that was communism. Brad Morrison called it communism, not in the text, but in his liner notes for it. The Puritans in general and the pilgrims had really severe anxiety about the pursuit of wealth because they want people to succeed. But if they're seen succeeding at the expense of others, which we call capitalism, my gain is often somebody else's loss. I charge more for this good. Someone else is paying a higher price for it. We see that as the way a market works. They saw that as people departing from an ideal. There's a very famous case in Boston in the mid-17th century of a merchant who was a selectman, you know, one of the local elites who loses his position, who's threatened with being cast out of the church, started with accusation that he sold a bag of nails for too much money, then he sold a saddle for too much money, and he sold a horse for too much money. His point was that this is not true. I'm selling these for the right things, and I am a perfectly good Christian, I guess would be the word he would have used. I'm a member of the church and everything. So it's about their ambivalence towards wealth. They believe in making money, but they can't be seen to just be making money. But even if you go back as early as the Mayflower Compact or some of the early agreements, you get the sense that they're going to pry into each other's business a lot. And part of that is what then would feed later in the 17th century accusations of witchcraft, where people are doing things that they don't like, and they think they're doing it for the community. They're investigating things. So they investigate what we would think of as unusual behavior. They see as criminal or deviant behavior behavior inspired by a devil, and therefore they go after The same thing is what happens with their idea about wealth. So yes, they give up this idea of working for the common good. They realize it'll be better if everyone just does their own thing economically. Tell us a little bit about Thomas Morton and tell us a little bit about your book. So Thomas Morton was a lawyer. We don't exactly know when he was born, but he's a contemporary of someone like Bradford. And he gets involved in various legal troubles in England, and he decides to come over to Plymouth eventually, or to Massachusetts. And he makes a quick round trip in 1622, then he comes back in 24, 25. Bradford makes him famous for the modern audience because Bradford has this amazing scene of going to this place that was known as Merrimount, that is a view of the sea. And then Bradford constructed as Merrimount, a place of jollity. Puritans are not big into jollity. And Morton had erected a maypole, an 80-foot maypole, but deer antlers at the side, at the top of it, and danced around, gave alcohol, to native people, gave them guns. The pilgrims were really upset about the guns. 
And so they decide they're going to kick Morton out, so they exile him the first time. So Morton, quite literally, in open position, dances on and off the stage of American history. But then Morton comes back. The Pilgrims are sure he's going to go to jail. No one in England cares. He goes to Massachusetts. He gets him to fight with John Winthrop and others. Winthrop's the governor about how Massachusetts is going to be organized. They kick him out. He goes back. He spends the early 1630s organizing a campaign to have the Massachusetts Charter revoked. They actually win. Massachusetts is supposed to give back its charter, its physical charter, which they've taken over to New England. The colonists refuse to do that. But so Morton actually wins in court in England. During this time, Morton also writes this book called New English Canaan, which the Puritans first try to suppress around 1632. And then he gets it published in Amsterdam in 1637. And it's this ringing critique of, of the Puritans and the Pilgrims, who he hates. He comes back to New England in the early 1640s, goes back to Boston. They put him in jail. And now one of the things about him is he wrote a book against us. That is, they're upset that he wrote this book called New English Canaan. They shoot him terribly. Finally, they don't know what to charge him with. And so they exile him. Instead of sending him to England, he goes up to what is modern-day Maine, York, Maine, a place called Acumenicus at the time, and he eventually dies there. But what's so interesting about Morton, well, there are many things interesting because his story is amazing, is he writes this narrative, which gives us a very different version of interactions between English colonists on one hand and Native peoples on the other. Morton is famous for this Maypole scene. Bradford calls him the Lord of Misrule, a term the Puritans would use for people at certain times of year, the Puritans didn't like this, who would, in some of these rural villages, they would sort of periodically let off steam. There'd be a day where it's like, go wild, basically. The Puritans don't want anything like that. May Day. That's exactly right. So my most recent piece on Morton came out for May Day of this past year, right? As I argue, as I suggest in the book, understanding Morton allows us a really different view of how to understand early New England and suggests a different scenario. Things happened as they did wasn't for the lack of possibilities of going other directions. Morton suggested another way to live in early New England, one that would have been more peaceful with Native peoples. It's important for us to see that what happens in New England was a rejection of what Morton had in mind. So he was an outcast, literally outcast three times from New England. Do kids dance around a Maypole for May Day everywhere, or is that just in Massachusetts where I grew up? They do it in Massachusetts and they do it in parts of England, but I think it's not a very widespread thing. You do see it here. I mean, I'm in Los Angeles. So I think there are things like that. I don't know how common they are anymore. It predates Morton, but Morton does embrace the idea. Does that cross over you and Dr. Patel's areas of expertise? Because that seems like a very druid thing, a maypole, right? It does. In fact, we have long debates about it. It does cross over because it has these sort of late medieval origins and then the English pick it up. So yeah, there's some intersection there. You would like to say hello to you. Hello. How are you? Hello. Good to see you again. Do you know what? Actually, Dr. Patel, so I actually have a trivia question, and I didn't know you were going to be here. I'm going to involve both of you in this trivia question, and you can confer. So the question is this. At the end of Plymouth Plantation, it lists what I call the begats, so on, begats, so forth. And so it's just a list of people who lived and died. A frequent listener to the podcast, who is my wife, is really into names. She's a self-proclaimed name nerd, and some of the names of the Plymouth Plantation settlers were rather odd. So I'm going to give you a list of five names, and you guys have to decide which, if any of these, were not names of Plymouth Plantation settlers and or their immediate descendants. Which of these names was not the name of a Plymouth settler or one of their descendants? Love, wrestling, remember, resolved, or didgery priest? <laughs> I'm going with wrestling. Yeah, that would be my one too. 
Okay, you were wrong. They're all <laughs> names. <laughs> it is a trick question. <laughs> oh, that's bad. Love and wrestling were, in fact, brothers. Maybe. Wow, that's fantastic. Why I did guess. we think of that for our kids? <laughs> William Brewster's two sons, Love and Wrestling Brewster. Wow. That would be good for a grandson. <laughs> well, Dr. Mencal and Dr. Patel, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for being here. We're going to have to have you on again. This was just too much fun. Oh, I'm happy anytime, Lucas. This was a great pleasure. My guest next week is Maria Pamparo Escandon. She is the author of the recent hit, L.A. Weather. We're going to be talking about her book. And the book that she chose is Pedro Paramo by Juan Rulfo, which is a book I had never heard of, but is one of the most important works of... Mexican literature. It is a book that I think every Mexican child reads in high school, and it's a really amazing piece of work. It's trippy, and it's magical realism, and it's strange, but it's really beautiful, and I had a blast reading it. I think our conversation about Pedro Paramo is going to make a lot more sense if you've read the book, so this is one I would recommend. Go ahead and read it. It's only about 100 pages in translation. It's quite a journey. See you next week. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. Let's spare a thought for the 17-year-old boy who 400 years later is still known as a turkey fucker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think that's ever come up in any interview I've done. Not that exact phrasing. So I appreciate that. My pleasure. My pleasure.